Thank you for joining us for Opportunity Makers. Notch was founded by two immigrants, and ahead of National Immigrants Day, we wanted to showcase and profile storytellers and leaders across different sectors and industries to prove that immigrants, by and large, are opportunity makers, not opportunity takers. Today, we're excited to have Maryam Banakarim with us, who is the head of marketing at Nextdoor. She is a change agent who helps brands and organizations shift mindsets and build themselves through the lens of purpose. She also chairs the board of the press advocacy group, Reporters Without Borders. Thank you so much for joining us, Mariana. We're so excited to hear your story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Opportunity Makers. I'm really excited to have today Mariam, who's a really special guest. Um, I've already gotten a chance to hear a little bit of her story, so I know how fascinating this conversation is going to go. Um, and also heard a lot about Mariam's passion for New York, especially kind of saving the community and the vibe that has made New York so special for so many of us. So I'm hoping that she's going to tell us a little bit about that as well. Welcome, Mariam. Thank you so much for having me. For sure. Thank you for agreeing to share your story. Um, So I always like to start with um, a really simple question, which is what's your coming to America story? Uh, I'm originally from Iran. And in 1979, as um, you might know, there was a revolution. So we moved first to Paris. um, And then when it seemed like things were changing for a much longer period of time, we ended up moving to Northern California to a suburb of San Francisco called Lafayette. That's great. And so how old were you when you got to the U.S.? I was 11 or 12. So I went, I did sixth grade in Paris and then junior high in Lafayette. And when you got to the U.S., um, I mean, were you kind of already feeling a little bit more French or were you, what was your identity at that point? Was it, was it Iranian? Was it a combination? Well, you know, I mean, I don't know that I knew even that that was a thing, an identity at that age. Mm. I think we have a lot more awareness about things like that now than we did. And frankly, it wasn't like there was much of a choice. You were sort of, you know, parents didn't ask you, you just went, right? And I think, um, but what I do remember is arriving in Lafayette and, you know, my dad had signed me up um, for the local high school and to to go, you had to go do a meeting with the principal. And um, my dad said, oh, everybody in America rides a bike to school. So he, he bought me a bike. And then the first day of school, I showed up in my French clothes because, um, you know, even in Iran, I went to an American school, so we were pretty westernized. So um, I was wearing sort of this poofy skirt and a little petit bateau t-shirt and lace-up ballet shoes. And it was <laughs> in the 80s and everybody was wearing Calvin Klein jeans and Izod's. <laughs> and not a lot of people were biking to school. So immediately I sort of felt like I didn't fit in. Um, and I remember place. that evening going home and saying to my dad, I, I need to go to the mall because, you know, I, I was clocking around and seeing how everybody else um, dressed, right? Because you learn that you have to try and fit in to survive. And I knew that I didn't look like everybody else. I, I'm, I have this visual of you on a, on a bike with a baguette and <laughs> like a little beret. <laughs> going no to beret. I didn't have no a beret. beret. I did have the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I, I think you said something there that I um, completely agree with, which, which is that you get here as an immigrant and you look around and you realize really quickly that in order to survive, you have to fit in. And I guess, depending on what age you get here, you do ask yourself about identity and what that means for your identity, or maybe not. But a lot of the folks that we talked to actually came here as, as teenagers 
and uh, said that initially they tried so hard to fit in that <clears throat> they almost over-indexed and tried to, to really kind of relinquish any previous culture, identity, language, etc., and then found that later on in their life or went back to it and discovered how important it was for their actual identity. Um, as, was that the case at all for you? Or what's the story? How did you look? How do you look back on it now and think about your identity? Well, I mean, I look, I, we, we always knew we were Iranian. You know, um, you came to our house and there was, um, there was Iranian cooking all the time. And so, you know, I think you, you definitely wanted to be like somebody else because at that age, junior high, right? Middle school in particular, we're all trying to just fit in. So I do remember sort of the sense of like looking around, I, I, I long to be a cheerleader, right? Like you, that was like the pinnacle of the social order in, in junior high, right? And so you were sort of just like reading the room and taking it all in. I mean, I think I was fortunate because, you know, I was clearly not like everybody else, but that didn't really stop me. And I remember one of the first things I did is I joined every single after school club that um, would take me, you know, and I like, I didn't know what softball was, but I joined anyway. So I was like on the worst softball team, but I showed up. Um, I think I like did bowling. I had no idea what that was either. Um, I mean, I bowled and around, but I just like the bowling club. I, I don't know why, why did I join that? But I did. And I think, you know, I sort of just dove in, you came to the house and you definitely knew that, you know, grandma spoke Farsi and that there was Iranian cooking on the stove. And I did say to my parents, like, why can't you go to the PTA meetings? Why can't you be more like those other parents? Um, and my parents just weren't that interested. Um, but I think as I grew older, like by the time I went to college, and it sort of brings me to New York, like I ended up coming to college in New York. And I think by, by my senior year, I'd already begun to sort of um, feel myself a little bit more. Um, you know, I would say like when I got here, my name is Miriam and they started calling me Mary because it was easier. So I became Mary for my junior year, you know, my junior high and high school years. By the time I was a senior, um, I started using Miriam a little bit again. By the time I went to college, which was soon thereafter, I actually didn't go by Mary. I went by, by Miriam. So there was actually a, a point of transition where when I run into people from high school, they still call me Mary, even if I email them as Miriam. Um, and nobody in college or thereafter ever would know me as Mary, right? So for me too, there was that period of transition. Um, but I think coming to New York in particular was sort of a gift because the thing about Lafayette, which is, it was incredibly um, lovely, um, but it was very homogeneous. And I think the thing about coming to New York is that there was no one way to be, right? There's so many different walks of life in New York that you could just be anybody you want. In fact, I remember... Um, you know, people would go through different identities like semester to semester because you could, right? Like one day you could be sort of wearing Laura Ashley and be that person. The next day you could be, you know, goth. And the next day you could be, you know, a banker. And that was sort of like the identity experience that you could have in a place like New York. And in a lot of ways, it was the first place where I really felt like I belonged because I could be anything I wanted to be in, in a lot of ways. And so anything I wanted to be ended up being just being myself. Well, uh, the the way I've thought about it is um, that almost any other place that I know of, you have to be a certain way to belong. Mm -hmm. And New York is the only place I know where the, the, the way to belong is to be yourself, whatever that means. Um, I remember when I first came to the U.S., I, I actually went to California as well. I went to um, Palo Alto, which, you know, talk about homogeneous uh, communities. And 
I definitely felt like there was a certain way to be. Otherwise, I, I could not fit in. And I was told as much anyway. Um, and it was when I came to New York the first time that I looked around and I felt free. I felt like I could finally explore who I really am. It wasn't just being myself because I hadn't even explored who that was up until that point. So I think New York is so special. And I totally resonate with with everything you just said about it because of that. I think it's given a lot of immigrants, but also a lot of people who are different, uh, the, the license to be themselves. I, I call it the city of misfits. Um, and I love it for that. But, you know, honestly, I think there's a lot of truth to that in, in my high school. So I went to high school, I graduated in 85, right? There was a guy in my high school class um, who was a senior when I was a freshman and he um, was out. You know, that wasn't a concept that was really that common back then, particularly in a place like Lafayette. And I always actually think about him now um, going back to that time. Like, you know, people come to New York and they can be themselves. And I think that comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. It's not just about being an immigrant. It's about um, sort of being able to find your tribe in a city that's made up of lots of tribes, right? And I think that's sort of what makes the city so completely amazing. Totally. So I'm curious, what was the hardest thing about adjusting to life here? And the flip side of that question, uh, which I'd love for you to answer after is, what was the the best thing about being an immigrant, especially as it concerns your career and how it's helped you? Um, I, I don't, I mean, I guess, I don't know that there was something that I can pinpoint to having been hardest. I mean, obviously, um, you know, in Iran where you had lots of relatives and you were established, right? Like all that sort of went away. So it didn't matter. Um, you know, we had some means when we came here. So, so we were fortunate, but you didn't have that infrastructure, right? There was nobody to help me get into college or to give me my first job, right? Like all those things that um, you might've had back home. So you sort of had to just make your own way. Um, and frankly, in a lot of ways, I think that was a gift, but um I sort of knew even then, right? I rem My favorite story is that when I was in college and both my parents had actually gone to college in the States, but when I was going through the college process in my high school, um, this was pre-internet, they had these big yellow books that had all the colleges listed in them. And really like I picked where to go, you know, with the one visit to the guidance counselor, there was nobody who was sort of like shepherding me through or there was no like tutoring or anything like that. And I remember my mom sort of saying, um, by, you know, she wanted me to be a journalist. And she said, um, oh, you should go to Columbia because she equated Columbia with the journalism school, not actually really being able to parse all that apart, um, right. even though she'd gone to North Northeastern. So it's not like she hadn't gone to college in the States. So I remember I picked out that book and I looked under Columbia and the book that I had um, turned out it was a year out of date. It said women apply to Barnard because when I showed up to Barnard, that was the first year that Columbia had begun to admit women. But I had a book that was a year old. Somebody must have just given it to us. And so it said women apply to Barnard. So I show up on campus and um, people are like, why did you pick Barnard over Columbia? And the answer was because my book was a year out of date. Um, <laughs> you know, it, and it was like the best accident in some ways that that happened to me. So I think you know, the thing that was hard was that you sort of had to make your own way. On the flip side, I sort of think that's a gift because it creates resilience, right? Um, I, I learned early that I had to make my own pathway. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think the thing that was the best, I mean, probably in some ways, one of my favorite jobs was um, when I went to work at Univision. And I joke, all good Iranians should work in Spanish language media. Um, because in a lot of ways, it was like being an immigrant, like in the US, right? And at the time, the Hispanic population wasn't something that was well understood. But I could fully relate because 
it was it was the story of being an immigrant in this country and and what that experience was like. And there's a lot of similarities between the Hispanic culture and the Iranian culture. I mean, obviously not exactly the same, um, but that but I think one of the the gifts of being an an outsider is that you actually see things differently because you do see them from a different vantage point. And I remember being at Univision and meeting Judith Kerr, who's a big book publisher. And, and she at the time was publishing Teresa Rodriguez's um, book. And Teresa was one of the big anchors at Univision. And I said to her at the time where not a lot of people were publishing um, you know, Spanish language books, even in English. I said, what, what made you decide to do this book with Teresa? Like what made you see this opportunity and create this imprint? And she said, because I'm from Australia. And it's one of my big jokes, right? It's like, you see things differently. You see opportunities differently. You don't, you know, somebody said to me the other day, they love that phrase. It's never been done. Well, we've never done it that way before. Well, guess what? That was my entire life. It had never been done that way before. So to me, that's when you sort of see opportunity. And so um, being an outsider, that that is your experience base, right? Like you don't know the way that it's been done because you don't come from that. When talking about identity, I think um, collectively immigrants tend to have this identity of we will do things that no one has done before. We see things no one else sees, but we'll also take all the opportunities that no one else wants. Yes. And I think it's, it, I don't even know what to call that, if it's hustle or openness or, um, but it, it's just different. It's different. And we sort of hold on and grab onto anything that is thrown our way. Um, but then we also can look at the same situation and see things from a completely different perspective, which kind of leads me. You don't, sorry. you don't have that experience based, right? So you, you, you see a new right. in that sense, right? Totally. Um, so, so that leads me to my next question, which is one of the reasons I even wanted to start having these conversations. Um, if, if we agree that immigrants can look at the same situation and see it from a different perspective, I think, uh, we could also make the argument that as such immigrants can add tremendous value to, to a company, right? To the diversity of that company and ultimately to the progress of that company. Because I think we're, we're now at a point where we understand diversity means progress. Um, so I wanna ask you, what are your thoughts around diversity and immigration um, or immigrants? And how are you thinking about it You know, in your current role, given what you do, given the fact that you're a person who hires a lot of people and you have a lot of influence and probably are mentoring a lot of people as well. I mean, for, for me, right, I always sort of understood that different opinions or different perspectives were additive, um, at least in the fields that I've been in, right? And so that was never really a question for me. And I think um, I really hire for diversity of thought um, and experience because you can't, this idea of being able to see around the corner only happens when you have that, right? Like, we debate mm -hmm. lots of things and actually you don't want people to be debating the same thing because that's not actually pushing the thinking. So that's inherently something I, I believe in. Um, I think I'm fortunate, particularly, um, you know, like I say to me, in a lot of ways that that job at Univision was such a gift, right? Because you were sort of part of a community that really was very purpose-driven because in those days to work in the Hispanic marketplace, you were in fact focused on empowering a whole subsection of the population because by the way, many people at that time um, had come to the US and they'd assimilated, right? And gone from Carlos to Carl. And then sort of in that window, the Hispanic market began to sort of come into itself and then Carl would go back to Carlos, right? So you were actually seeing that happen real time. And also you saw the Hispanic buying potential 
And yet you would go to marketers and they had no sense of what that opportunity was, or they would say crazy things like, I don't want those people in my store, right? Like there were so many of those experiences where you would look at the numbers and the data would show what the potential was. And you would see that that wouldn't convert because people were just sort of stuck in their ways, right? So, I mean, I think it for me, it was so obvious. And yet you realize like what's obvious for you is not obvious for other people. On the flip side, I fast forward to where I am today um, at Nextdoor. And when I look around the executive team, um, a lot of the executive team at Nextdoor is from someplace else, right? Prakash is originally from India, um, Antonio's from Brazil, Heidi's from Denmark, our CEO Sarah's from Ireland, Tatiana's um, Russian. Like literally there's only one or two people who are actually um, not people who had immigrated or had you know, family who immigrated recently. And that does bring a diversity of perspective. Um, not just to the fact that we're a global company, but just in terms of sort of how people show up at the table. Um, so I think it obviously it matters, but you know I'm sort of a product of that experience. Yeah, I I think a lot about this not just at the leadership levels, but also how can we ensure that we're taking you know immigrants from a pretty early stage in their career and mentoring them through through the process of of growing their career. Um, I think part of it is just so powerful to hear your story and how you've used the fact that you can see things from another perspective to advance your career, essentially. Um, but as you think about other immigrants, you know, immigrants that a lot of immigrants come here the way I did, which is for university. A lot of immigrants come here the way you did with their parents, when they're teenagers. A lot of immigrants come here later on. What would be your advice um, around how they should or shouldn't uh, think about their careers in, in the U.S.? I think like anything, like the whole world has been disintermediated, right? Things were much more difficult. Um, you know, I think about when I started and, you know, my mom who wanted me to be a journalist, like to be a journalist, you have to get somebody to hire you into sort of the, you know, elite world of media, right? Like to work at the New Yorker or the New York Times. And that was sort of the only way you could actually get published. Today, you can self-publish. I mean, this, the rules are completely, completely different. Um, and, you know, my daughter said to me the other day, oh, I want to work for Rolling Stone magazine. And it's so funny because I'm like, you know what? Just start a blog. Like, you know what? Start an Instagram account where you actually go interview people. You don't actually need to go get the stamp of approval of Rolling Stone. Not to say that that's not a great job, but I yeah. think hustle is really what sets you apart anyway. Um, and so you know, like anything, the reason I give you the example of next door is not so much because it doesn't matter about the pipeline, but one of the things we know about having worked on diversity and inclusion for years in this country is that you work on getting people into the building, but when they don't feel like they're supported or they don't feel like the environment is inclusive or that they can be their authentic self, they don't stick around and you can't get them up to the pipeline, right? Melody Hobson talks about needing to have diversity at the board level and I think she's right because you actually need people at the top that, that can actually advocate, but also you need examples, right? It's sort of the idea of like, I didn't know I could be that person until I saw that. Um, I remember when I took the job at Hyde and I flew to Dubai to visit the team, how excited two of the women were that were checking me in. And I remember going to the room and calling my family back and, you know, they wanted to take selfies and it was just this um, sort of funny experience. I said, it was almost like I was a celebrity. And my daughter, who was at the time a teenager, she was like, oh, mom, you're so not a celebrity. <laughs> of course I knew. But the point was that 
you know, in Dubai, you don't have that many people who are senior executives who are women, right? And so the idea that somebody could be that, and, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? So you sort of need to worry about the entire pipeline. You need to have it, you need to be able to model, but you also need not just to worry about getting them into the building. You need to also worry about keeping them into the building, giving them the support mechanism to actually feel like they can contribute and want to stick around. And I think, you know, what we now know is a lot of immigrants um, don't even work into the system because sometimes it's hard to get into the system. That's why a lot of them start their own businesses, right? That's also not coincidental. Um, yep. So different barriers, right? So um, I remember when I was in business school, people would interview for consulting jobs. And one of the things that would happen um, at these very prestigious companies was that they actually would invite you for the weekend. And really what they were doing was actually seeing if you knew how to put your fork on the you know, table, like, were you going to fit, fit in, right? Like that idea has been disintermediated. And I think um, on the flip side, if that's the kind of thing you want, like those rules still exist, right? And so I think having people who can coach you and support you so that you know what it is you want and that you can actually attain that is sort of critical. And it behooves all of us because we stand on the shoulder of others to help bring other people along. Uh, yes, to 150 million percent, all of that. Um, I wonder, who, who did you look up to as you were going through and growing in, in your career? Because I, I ask that because I I, um, I struggle with that a lot, uh, given, given what I do. So, And I'm assuming the same is true for you. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I didn't have that one person, right? But I was fortunate that there was just a lot of people, like people who sort of took interest and, and helped you along, right? So I remember, first of all, I ended up going to Barnard and there were a lot of women leaders, right? By definition, it turned out to be a great thing. Um, and then, you know, e even then it was like somebody would take, I remember when I was in college, I um, I was nominated for a Truman Scholarship and then I won, which was, I, I was shocked at. And I remember um, my advisor, I went to go tell him he'd written my recommendation. I said, oh, I won. And he said, let this not be the last thing they say about you. So having people who sort of always had more in store for you. Um, I love that. I think, you know, um, Richard Pius was never easy and I loved him for that. But, you know, I also had parents who sort of told me that I could be anything I wanted to be. I mean, my mom still says, oh, you can still be Oprah. And I'm like, oh, dear God, mom. So <laughs> I think that there's that, that sense of like, the limitlessness and also like your own personal hustle, right? And so at each job, there's been people who've been inspiring, right? But each job also comes with its own challenge. Each chapter comes with its own challenge. So you have to continuously be um, pushing yourself forward. Um, I agree. I mean, I, I look at other people who say like, oh, this person was my mentor and they paved the way. Like I always wish like, where was that person? I, wait, wait, where do I go find one of those? Um, and then finally, somebody said to me, you might be that person for yourself. And I think that is a no, right? Because in a lot of ways, I was always sort of waiting for somebody else. But the good news is on my waiting, I didn't actually just wait. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if, um, I don't know, maybe maybe we would be further along if there was someone either ahead of us or if there was someone uh, mentoring us through it as well. But well, equally, we know the answer to that. The answer to that is yes, because we know other people who have that. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily this. You know, there's many paths in life, right? Of um, course, of course, of course. I think there's um, there there's also an element of you know extra responsibility and purpose when when we know that we get to do that 
for others as well. Um, but on, on that note, I wanted to ask you, you know, in, in your current role, I think it's interesting that you're kind of walking this world between Silicon Valley and, and New York, um, because next door's HQ is in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's actually very unique. You know, we're, we're, we're like two, two people working in technology that happen to be women from other countries, yeah. you know, at the helm of technology companies. This, is, this doesn't happen that often. Um, and having lived in Silicon Valley, I'm sure you're very familiar with, with the, the world of Silicon Valley. Um, our companies are not representative of, of the larger ecosystem there. Um, how, how, how do you kind of view Silicon Valley from the perspective of both immigrants and sort of diversity and New York? Um, and what are the things that, you know, for all the tech founders listening to this, that you think they could learn from from next door and from your experience uh, so far? Well, I mean, I think um, you know the thing that's interesting about the world of tech, right, is that there actually are immigrants in the world of tech. It's one of the few industries where that actually, right, a lot of engineers and you know all good Iranians. Their parents tell them either be a doctor or an engineer, so you got a lot of those. Same with Romanians. I don't know why. Yeah. So you know, so so there's not there there are definitely. Um, a lot of immigrants in the in the world of tech. What you don't have is a lot of women, um, particularly at senior levels, right? And so I have to say, I'm incredibly one. One of the appeals of joining Nextdoor um, was that we had a female CEO, and we also have other women on the executive team, right? Um, and and that was something that mattered. Like we have um, me, Heidi, and Tatiana and Sarah. So four of the executive team are women. Um, and actually all of us, funny enough, are immigrants. So I think that's rare and you definitely see that play out. It plays out in terms of um, like people's experience base and how they how they see the culture at the company. Um, and so it's been fascinating, right? Now, I have to say often I've been one of few women in senior roles that sort of ends up being um, the experience you have, unfortunately for, for the world in which we live. Um, but it is slightly different because it's a much more casual culture, right? Tech is much more casual. Everybody, I, I joke, like everybody's like in t-shirts and, and jeans um, where, you know, when you work in corporations, everyone's sort of more dressed up. So there is, there, there's definitely a different culture, but mm -hmm. there still is a hierarchy. There still is a, you know, a, a belonging. And I remember when I first showed up in San Francisco for headquarters, I was joking that everybody had a backpack, um, you know, the, the cues that you pick up in junior high where like you fit in like everybody else, that doesn't change in life, right? Um, I, I was like, wait, everybody's, you know, in jeans and has a backpack. Like if I want to fit in, I'm going to have to go get a backpack. The good news is I don't worry about fitting in anymore. <laughs> Can I just tell you uh, what's really funny is I, I almost wish that that I could show this to everyone listening. But when I showed up in Silicon Valley, I realized that very quickly myself. And especially as a tech founder, you can't show up with a Balenciaga bag, you know, like you have to show up with a backpack. And uh, my twist on it is I bought a leather backpack and I still have it and I wear it to this day and I just carry it around. With it's like being an anthropologist. There are cues. Um, yeah, there are cues. And you can make it your own. Yeah, and, and by the way, you, you, can choose, you can choose to abide by those cues or not, but recognizing them allows you to make a choice. Well, if you choose not to abide by them, then it creates friction, which sometimes decreases the chance for success. And I think that's the conundrum that that we all face. Um, but figuring out how to make it your own and what are the battles you can choose versus the battles you will give up 
um, I think is all part of life in general, but in particular, the immigrant journey. But I think it's about choice, right? So you can choose what you're willing to do in terms of friction. And I think in the end, the what you want in life is choice. Yep, that's true. Choice and freedom. Choice and freedom. Thank you so much for the conversation. This was such a joy. Um, I know everyone's going to gain a ton of value from listening to this back and forth. Um, anything else you want to share before we drop off? Oh, so I was going to go back to the thing about New York. I think, you know, I think one of the things about um, immigrants is that you, you don't take where you live for granted, right? And so for mm-hmm. me, um, not just being an American, but also um, being a New Yorker, right? And so as our cities are having difficulties, I think um, wanting to step in and help our cities, right, as well as our country is a critical thing because, you know, it's, it's like the right to vote. I say, like, we don't take that for granted because in a lot of places we don't have that. So yep. in that same sense, I think there's this incredible sense of wanting to help your neighbors and your neighborhood and your city and your community. And I think that that's the other thing that I think we now are seeing a lot of in sort of um, the current scenario that we're all living in through a pandemic, because I think we all are very tied to sort of the place that we we live, right? And I think um, this effort that we've started to help New York City, New York City Next has been incredible because it's giving us all something positive where we feel like we have some sense of control to like give back. And I think that is inherently sort of in the DNA of people who immigrate, immigrate, right? Because for sure. we don't take it all for granted. And I think that that also has been incredibly rewarding. Well, what I think is inspiring about that story is that, um, you know, especially because you're an immigrant, you want to help the place that it gave you so much opportunity versus, as you said, take it for granted. Um, and I think oftentimes immigrants are seen as just takers, Right. And the fact that you're speaking about us now, the fact that you're investing so much of your time into giving back is just a testimony to how much more invested immigrants are in, in adding value to the place they're in. Um, so how, how can people find the, the initiative? How can they get involved? So um, you can just go to NewYorkCityNext.org. It's an all-volunteer organization. Literally eight weeks ago, a group of us were like, how are we going to help our city? And now we're doing these pop-ups around... Um, you know, the city. And by the way, in different boroughs. So I just met a gentleman who's in Bay Ridge. He actually plays um, Arabic music as pop-ups in Bay Ridge. And we're going to try and do one with him. And I think like the thing that makes New York amazing is the diversity of the people and all the art forms. And I think the other thing we all believe that art is sort of the way to economic recovery. So we've been doing these pop-ups. And the biggest one we actually did was this past week in Times Square, um, where we had two dozen Broadway actors, many of whom had won Tonys, including Bernadette Peters, who sang on the steps one song. And it was honestly so amazing to see sort of the moment of joy and hope that one moment gave everybody, not just the people who came together as a community. And by the way, like the arts community is a group of people who come to New York to, to find their people, right? Very much sort of this idea of we're all misfits and we come together. And actually, yeah. in that coming together, you create this amazing experience of art. Um, but also the people who walked by and the people who got to participate, like literally there were like tears and I even had tears the next day. So, um, and it's been amazing because people have been posting it all over social media and they all say they watch it and and are brought to tears. And the fact that, and I, and I woke up that next morning and I thought, oh my God, like a little girl from Iran (laughs) gathered with a bunch of people and made that happen. How is that possible? And honestly, that was my first thought at 6 a.m. the day after was like, 
Yeah. I mean, I was a little girl from Iran, right? And like, I, I mean, I clearly did not do it alone. This was very much of a group effort and it's so not about me, but that I could be part of a group that did that. Um, I mean, talk about like the American dream and the world of possibilities that await all of us if we actually just step in. It's crazy that a little girl from Iran got the Times Square steps and got <laughs> the best Broadway actors to sing a song to bring hope during a global pandemic. I mean, if someone had told you that <laughs> at 16, 20, or even a year ago, you'd probably be like, what? I would never have thought it possible. But I mean, you know, I think the other thing, you know, as an immigrant is you never go it alone. Right. And so as much as um, any other lesson, I would say somebody, you know, there's that phrase about if you want to go far, you don't go alone. I think that is definitely true because There were a lot of people who um, helped make this happen and it's not a singular effort. And by the way, you know that as somebody who is an immigrant, you know, you don't do things alone. And I think that it's about the collective, right? I say, it's not, this is not a moment about me. It's a moment about we. And I think that is very much the thing that we're all now living. Um, and it was just awe-inspiring. It was inspiring to see everybody's faces, to see everybody's energy um, and to have a positive moment, which we all can use um, every day. For sure. Well, thank you for bringing that energy to this conversation. I definitely uh, feel so much more hopeful and energized after talking to you. Thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me. Marianne, thank you so much for sharing your empowering story. It's so fascinating, but I also think you cover and talk about what it means to be a New Yorker specifically, but also what it means to be an American so eloquently. And we're so excited to have you be a part of this with us. Join us next time for another episode of Opportunity Makers, where we profile top immigrants, showcasing how they are opportunity makers, not opportunity takers. Thank you.